You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together to the passage, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. We've taken this passage because Romans 6 also speaks about the matter that we are going to be dealing with in connection with Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. As far as our scripture reading, we turn now to the Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory. And not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it happens all the time. What is it that happens? Well, it's the feeling that some things just don't seem to fit or even appear to be contradictory. Take the weather as an example. For years now, we have been told by the experts that global warming is coming. And last week, there were even dire predictions that in the not-so-distant future, our part of the world is going to warm up 
to such an extent that skiing on our local mountains may very well become a thing of the past. There just will not be enough snow around to make it possible. Sounds rather ominous. But nevertheless, no sooner did we read these dark predictions and we stepped outside and it was freezing. Not today, but earlier in the week. This year, we've had another cold spring. Indeed, it's been well below normal until the last couple of days, we were even wondering whether it would ever come. So we asked, where is the global warming? And indeed, many people can be heard to say cynically, bring it on. And bring it on soon, please. Of course, you're wondering, what does global warming have to do with Lord's Day 33? Well, I would suggest to you that Lord's Day 33 at first sight is a bit of a letdown. If not, perhaps even considered by some of you to be a bit of a conflict or a contradiction. For look, last time in Lord's Day 32, we were informed in big, bold letters that we are now in a new part of the catechism called thankfulness, our thankfulness. And we read that and we rubbed our hands with glee because better days have surely now arrived. We can now get into the thankfulness or into the gratitude mode. From now on, all the news and all the theology is going to be cheery and cheerful. But then, lo and behold, we come to Lord's Day 33. And what do we hear? We hear about dying. We are reminded about the old nature or the old man in us. We are confronted with negative and painful words like grieving, sorrow, offending, hating, fleeing. And we're brought face to face with the rather difficult matters of conversion or repentance. And when we see all of that, we wonder, is something not out of sync here? What does conversion have to do with thankfulness? What does repentance have to do with gratitude? Isn't there a conflict here? No, beloved, not really. Not if you really think it through for a moment, for then you begin to see that actually thankfulness and conversion are very closely linked. You can say even there cannot be any true thankfulness if that thankfulness is not grounded in true conversion or in real repentance. And to see that clearly, let's look a little bit more at Lord's Day 33 of the Catechism. I preached to you on conversion. What, who, how, when? We'll look at its need, its character, its fruit. Well, let's begin this afternoon with a basic question. And the basic question is this. Is conversion or repentance really necessary? Does it have to happen? Is it required? Is it actually part and parcel or not of the Christian life? 
Some time ago, I mentioned to you that there are Christians who consider that regeneration or rebirth isn't really necessary. So would they say the same thing about conversion or repentance? Why, we can even make it somewhat more concrete. Does this baby who has been baptized here this afternoon really need to convert, to repent? Has she not received the sign and seal of God's covenant? Is she not an heir to the kingdom already? Is she not exempt from these things? No, beloved, she's not. Also, for covenant children, the call goes out that they need to be converted and to repent of their sins. Baptism doesn't exempt them. Being in the church doesn't give them a pass. Now, the fundamental need of repentance or conversion remains. But then, of course, you might ask, what does all of this mean? What is, after all, repentance? What is conversion? Well, beloved, in fact, there are any number of Old Testament as well as New Testament words that play a role here. Both repentance as well as conversion are based on a large Old Testament word group that's all about being sorry, being moved to pity, regretting wrongdoing, turning back, going in the opposite direction. And a good example of that can be found in Joel 2, the verses 12 and 13, where we read these words, Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And you hear that elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. The same summons to turn your life around. And you know, in the New Testament, it's no different. There, too, you have a word group, a bunch of words that basically stress the need for people to change directions, to have a change of heart and mind and will, to turn around. Think, for example, of the Apostle Paul and what he writes to to various churches and to its members about the need to put off and to put on. Specifically to the Ephesians and Colossians, Paul mentions that there is this need for believers to put off their old nature with its wicked practices and to put on the new nature, redeemed after the image of Christ. My beloved, if you look at all of these words, you say, then the Christian faith has to be all about change, about movement about turning, about remodeling and and renovation and overhauling of people's lives. And of course that means at the same time that you, biblically speaking, cannot say that you are a Christian if you are determined to remain in your sin. If you are content 
to dwell there. If you live a fallen, depraved, wretched, evil life and have no intention of changing or doing anything about it, then you really can't consider yourself to be in good standing with God. You know, in one of his books, Charles Colson writes about a man by the name of Mickey Cohen, whom he tried to convert. Mickey Cohen, you may have heard, you may have known, was a gangster. And after Colson had another round at him, he, he responded one day and he asked this question, why can't I be a Christian gangster? What does that tell you? He wanted it both ways. He wanted to keep his old lifestyle as well as augmented with a new identity. Only that can't be done. You can't stay put and put on at the same time. It's either one or the other. You need to choose. You have to choose. And so being a Christian means making choices. It means making fundamentally a choice between living a life of sin or a life of holiness. It means making a choice in humble reliance upon God and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you know, that choice needs to be made by everyone. I don't care who you are. Doesn't matter what your standing is. Doesn't matter what your color is, what your class is. Everybody has to make a choice in the context of the Christian faith. This baby has to make it. You and I have to make it. This is something universal in the context of the gospel. And it's also something urgent and necessary. The scriptures too are filled with that. Think, for example, God says through Isaiah, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there isn't any other. And God says to Ezekiel, turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And Paul says to the citizens of Lystra, turn from these worthless things to the living God. And about the Jews and Greeks, he says that they must turn to God and repentance. In short, beloved, the compelling message of the word of God is that we all need to lean on God and turn from our sinful ways. If we want to be saved, we need to turn. If we want to live, we need to turn. If we want to possess everlasting life, we need to turn. Therefore, this call comes to all of us. And it comes with a measure of urgency and insistence and persistence and passion. 
Why will you continue to live in your sins and die? But nevertheless, there's also something else that needs to be said about all of this, and that is that this is a continuous calling. In other words, the call to change, to redirect, to recommit that comes from God is something that continues all through our lives. Now, that has implications. In some Reformed circles, great stress is placed on a believer being able to pinpoint the moment of his or her conversion. And indeed, before you can go to the Lord's Supper, you need to come to the elders and you need to tell the elders about the precise circumstances of your conversion. When did it happen? Where did it happen? What did you experience? And after you tell the story, they'll examine you. And if they find your story to be credible, then you can finally partake of the sacrament and you can finally consider yourself to be a real, true believer. So what does that tell you? It tells you that in order to be a real member of the church of Jesus Christ and a true Christian, you need to have a dramatic, sudden, discernible conversion experience. And without it, you're just a believer in waiting. In New England, in the United States, they used to say that without any experience like this, you are still in the halfway Covenant. Now, beloved, all of that is in reality sad and distorted business. For while it's true that conversion is a universal requirement of the Christian faith, it is not true that sudden and dramatic conversion is always such a requirement. Of course, it's true. Some people do have a sudden conversion experience and they can point you exactly to the time and the moment and the place. You can think here of King Manasseh. What about the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? Or the jailer at Philippi? And there are others. But then at the same time, what about the Abrahams and the Davids? And the Hezekiahs and the Timothys. You see, for some, it is sudden. But for others, it's gradual. It's not surprising that if you are exposed to the gospel ever since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, that your turning to God might be little by little, step by step, day and year by year. And in the kingdom of God, it does work both ways. 
And no one way should be elevated above the other. Leave room, beloved, for the sudden, but also leave room for the gradual. We're not allowed to hem in the Holy Spirit. But in here is something that's even more important. Insist. If you need to insist on anything, insist on the daily. For in the end, it's not whether or not your conversion was sudden or gradual. That matters. What matters is whether or not it's daily. For daily conversion should be our aim. It's the norm. Every day we're to turn from our sins. And every day we need to embrace God. And isn't that what the catechism following the scripture stresses in Lord's Day 33? Notice it's written in the present tense. The question is not what was the dying of the old nature, but what is the dying of the old nature? It's not what was the coming to life of the new nature, but what is the coming to life of that nature? Conversion or repentance, in other words, are present and ongoing realities. They need to happen every day. But then specifically, what needs to happen? Well, let's look first at the old nature of the old man. The sinful nature. What needs to happen to that nature? Also, as we read about it in Romans chapter 6. Well, it needs to die. It needs to be terminated. But if you like old language, it needs to be mortified. And how? By means of a certain process. And notice the catechism says the process begins with grieving. And that means deep, heartfelt, sincere grieving. This is not something superficial that we're talking about. No, this is serious and painful stuff. And what is? It's the fact that we have, because of our sin, offended God. In other words, this is not about a a minor infraction, a minor infraction of a minor personality. No, we need to see sin for what it is, an offense against God, an attack on his holy person, a violation of his divine will. Do not dumb down your sin. Do not minimize it. Do not rationalize it. Call it as it is, which is an assault on God. Yes, and because it's all of that, we need to grieve. It needs to cause us pain and regret and remorse. How is it possible that we're doing this kind of stuff to God. It needs to bother and burden our lives. And it needs to do so to such an extent that we come to hate it. Now, hate's a strong word. 
It's a word that needs to be used sparingly and with great care. But you know, here in this context, it's entirely appropriate and necessary. Hating your sin, beloved, is right on. Hating the ways that you sin against God, hating the ways that you sin against your fellow human beings, your neighbor, that's appropriate behavior. As Christians, we need still to know how to hate. As long as that hate is directed at our sins. And notice it doesn't stop there. But the Catechism mentions one more step, which is flight. Flight. That sounds easy, perhaps. But it's not. There are believers who struggle with booze and drugs. Some struggle with smut or pornography. Others with sexual Immorality, they struggle with it, but they don't conquer it. And one of the reasons they don't conquer it is because they don't put enough distance between themselves and these things. They hate. But unfortunately, that which they hate They keep close at hand. And that needs to stop. To put the to death the old nature requires distance. It demands and requires a separation. Then you stay away from that bar. And you avoid that game. And you burn that trash. And you walk away, perhaps, from that girl. Distance, distance, distance. Distance yourself from your sins. And realize at the same time that grief and hatred and flight, that's only one side of the coin. The negative side. There's another side. Another part of the process, and it's positive, and it's called, notice what the catechism says, love, joy, delight, right living. The Lord Jesus speaks about demons and houses. And in this regard, you need to be careful. Once you've swept the demons out of your house, don't leave it vacant. But fill it with good things. And you know, the first and fundamentally good thing that we have here is is heartfelt joy in God through Jesus Christ. It's about joy. Joy in God through Christ. You know, you can read about that so so beautifully in Romans chapter 6. There we come face to face with our union with Christ. And notice Paul says, you know, we, we've been baptized with Christ. We've been baptized even into his death. We've been buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. And the result 
Well, the result is, he says, you should count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. Christ, Paul says, has rescued us. He's redeemed us. He's transported us into a whole new life. Isn't that awesome? And isn't that a reason for joy? It's a reason to love the will of God and to delight in it. And also, what an incentive to live a life of good works. It's good works. Some people read that and they say, oh, we do that already. We don't, we don't need Christ. Maybe you've come across that. We, we don't need Christ to do good works. We, we don't need the Holy Spirit. We, can do it ourselves. This is finally something we can do all by our little itty-bitty selves. Saving the planet, donating to charity, helping old ladies, excuse me, old ladies across the street. No problem. We can do all these things. Really? You know, if that's how you approach the matter of good works, then it proves you're only scratching the surface. And it proves you really don't have much of a clue. What really are good works all about? What's their definition? What's their character? Notice, a life of good works, which in other words is a life full of real fruit, is a threefold life. First, we, we, it reckons with the source. And the source of such a life isn't human willpower or determination or what have you. The source is true faith. That sure knowledge and that firm confidence that the catechism talked about way back in Lord's Day 7. Good works come out of a life lived in real trust in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's where it comes from. And second, such a fruit-bearing life also has a certain standard. And that standard isn't the will of man, and it's not the current trends in our society, neither is it popular sentiment or expression. No, it's the immutable law of God. The law especially as you find it defined in the Ten Commandments. You need to test your works, your fruit, by a certain norm, standard, criteria. And it's the law. Finding a life filled with good works and lots of fruit also is a life that has a goal, that has a focus, a target. And notice it's called the glory of God. Not human fame, not human acclaim, compliments or standing. It's all about God. It's all about honoring Him. It's about raising His reputation. It's about increasing His fame. And therefore it means, and all of this means, that it's not based on our own opinions or on the precepts of men. 
If you want to be this kind of a tree, you got to understand it's all about God and about His glory. And when you see that, when you understand that, then, beloved, I would say to you, thankfulness will fill the air. If you have a bunch of truly converted people, you just have to have a bunch of thankful people. Because that's what truly repentant or converted people are. They've been blown away by the mercy of God. They live by grace, the power of the Spirit. They know it's all from above. Thankfulness and conversion. Hand in hand. Beloved, may that be the case with you, and may that be the case with this baby as she grows up. That she lives a converted, a truly converted life. Because such a life is going to give thanks to God every day, everywhere, before everyone, in everything. It won't be a perfect life. Christ Jesus takes care of the perfection and the warts and the shortcomings. But it will still be a thankful life. And God be praised. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com dot org.